0: Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. I remember so clearly being a sophomore in college and sitting in my dorm room, and one day the thought just occurred to me what happened to Jesus? after he resurrected. Like I knew the Bible said that he he rose back to life and that he appeared to people, But, but then what? Did he just kind of fade away? Did he die again? Did he move to Florida, you know, where he plays shuffleboard at some retirement community? Like I legit did not know what happened to Jesus. And maybe you're the same way. Maybe you're, you're new to Sunrise, maybe the only time you really attended church was Easter Sunday, so you know all about the resurrection, but you don't really know what happened after that. Or maybe you're new to the faith and you don't really have a vast biblical knowledge just yet. Or maybe worse yet, you're like me, you grew up in the church and you still didn't know. Well, if that's the case, uh, today we're gonna fill in some gaps and we're gonna look at some very significant events that took place in the life of Jesus and his disciples following the resurrection. Three very significant moments Beyond the grave. So, to guide our time today, we are going to be in the New Testament book of Acts. So, if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, make your way over to the book of Acts. It's short for the Acts of the Apostles, and it chronicles the events that took place following the resurrection of Jesus and the life of the apostles. So, we're going to begin in verse 1 of Acts 1. Read along with me. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So the book of Acts is written by Luke. And as he mentioned, this isn't his only book, he has written another one, the Gospel of Luke. Both books were compiled by taking eyewitness interviews and condensing them into a letter to somebody he wrote named Theophilus. And here at the beginning of Acts, Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to his disciples over the course of 40 days. And then he jumps into a very specific one of those interactions, verse 4. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. After the resurrection, Jesus' interaction with his disciples changed significantly. He wasn't with them all day and all night like he was before he rose again. Now he appeared and disappeared, appeared and disappeared. In fact, that's how it was on the very first day of the resurrection. It's recorded in John's gospel, in John chapter 20. It said, On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.'" So he appeared into this locked room, and that was one of a couple of interactions he had with his disciples in Jerusalem. Then he gave them some instructions, "'Meet me up in the countryside up in Galilee.'" And so they did, and then he appeared to them again and spent about 40 or so days with them and then said, "'Go back to Jerusalem.'" Why the change? Why another change of location? Well, a big festival was about to come up. It was called the Festival of Weeks, or the Feast of Weeks. In Greek, it's referred to as Pentecost. And it occurred 50 days after the Jewish festival of Passover. And so the idea is that Jews from all over Israel and surrounding nations would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate, and they'd do so by offering bread as a sign of showing God thanks for the good harvest. So, in all likelihood, the disciples were heading to Jerusalem anyway. But if there was ever a year to skip the festival, this was the one. Because Jerusalem was ground zero for persecution against followers of Jesus. Jerusalem was the place where they brutally murdered Jesus through crucifixion. Jerusalem was a place where followers of Jesus would get dragged out of their homes, thrown into prison, and in some cases stoned to death in the streets. And even today, where we stand on this day, on this year, persecution is occurring with millions of followers of Jesus across the globe. In places like North Korea and Afghanistan and Nigeria, followers of Jesus are massively persecuted, ostracized, beaten, sexually assaulted, killed. It's still happening. If somebody were to hand me a plane ticket and said you can go anywhere in the world, I could tell you with confidence, I would pick a place where I wouldn't have to fear for my life because of my faith in Jesus. And yet, Jesus sent his apostles straight back into the hornet's nest, right back to the scene of the crime. And he said, When you get there, wait. How long? He didn't specify. And so they did. And they eventually made it to Jerusalem, and they went to a place called the Mount of Olives, the site of so many interactions with Jesus, and then he appeared to them again. And when he did, they had all kinds of questions. Verse 6, then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if you've been tracking with us, you know that what the people wanted out of Jesus was much different than what he brought. They wanted a Messiah who was a military leader, not a suffering servant. But here's the reality. There is coming a time where Jesus is going to restore his kingdom in Israel. There is coming a time where Jesus is going to topple all the empires of the world, not just the Roman Empire. There's coming a time where Jesus is going to take his seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem, but not just as king of the Jews, as king of the world. These days are coming But nevertheless, Jesus corrected his disciples. Verse 7, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Wait, what? Power? Spirit? Jerusalem? Judea? Samaria? What's this all about? Before they can get all their questions answered, this happened. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So in case you're wondering what happened to Jesus after his resurrection, here's your answer. He ascended back up to heaven. He literally levitated before their very eyes all the way up into the sky. Have you ever watched a helium balloon float up in the air? And you kind of you follow it until it eventually fades out of view— That's similar to what happened to Jesus. He, He just kept floating up. Verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Almost certainly these men were angels. Some of you may recall that at the empty tomb of Jesus on Easter morning, two angels appeared to the women to tell them that the tomb was empty and Jesus was alive. Could it have been the same two angels, perhaps? Maybe it was Moses and Elijah, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, the law and the prophets testify to Jesus. We don't know. Here's what they said, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So as these guys were were looking up, this angel basically says to him, hey, he's coming back. So, so get back to work. And so, these disciples, after experiencing this, they did that very thing. Verse 12 Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And so, now the disciples have headed down the Mount of Olives and they have returned to this upper room, probably the same place where Jesus had what we know as his Last Supper. And it says in verse 15, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. So now we find out that in this upper room, there's 120 people, all followers of Jesus, Now, I've been in that upper room. I could tell you it's big, and it could easily fit 120 people. And so then Peter stands up, and he starts talking about Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. And he suggests that they need to replace him. There's there's an open spot on the apostles' team. He says in verse 20, "'For,' said Peter, "'it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership.'" So according to scriptures, that 12th spot vacated by Judas needed to be filled. So how did they do it? Verse 23. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, So he was added to the 11 apostles. I find this interesting because the casting of lots is essentially rolling dice. So you have all of these spiritual moments, you know, with Jesus up, watching him float into the sky and coming back and prayer and worship. And then it comes down to rolling the dice. Mama needs a new pair of shoes. You know, now listen, typically, I don't recommend you trying to determine the will of God for your life by rolling dice. I actually had a friend who used to sit in front of his basketball hoop and determine the will of God by taking shots. You know, if I make it, then I go through this door. If I miss, then I go through the other. I I generally don't think that's a good idea. But in this case, consider the circumstances. They had one spot and two guys, and everybody was praying about it. They were all at peace with the results, so they cast lots, and it fell on Matthias, and they were good. But don't you just wonder if the other guy was like, come on, two out of three. I was this close to being on the team. And so now the apostles were back to 12. Matthias was the one who took that 12th spot. 120 disciples of Jesus were in this room, faithfully following Christ, waiting for the gift to come that the Father would send. And then it finally arrived. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Just exactly what Jesus said occurred. He said the Holy Spirit was coming. It came. He said they would receive power they did. And this power was shown through the supernatural ability to communicate in other languages. Now, who is this mysterious Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Now, this is one of the most complex and most beautiful of the doctrines about God, that he is a triune God three in one. One God and three persons. Now, I've seen this artistic rendering as an attempt to try to explain the the triune God, the Trinity God. I have this graphic up here, and here's the idea behind it. You've got these three different distinct aspects, but they're all kind of weaved together, so you can't really tell where it begins and where it ends. And so these different Aspects or persons of this triune God are the Father. The Father is God, but the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is God, but the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is God, but He is not the Father or the Son. But all three are, in essence, God. God is not three gods, it's one God, it's not three people. It's one God. It's not three sizes, small, medium, and large. You know, the Father is large, the Son is medium, and the Spirit is small. No, three equal in essence with God. And they have different roles. The Father plans it out. The Son pulls it off, and the Spirit powers it up. For example, the Father planned how to redeem sinful humanity, so he sent the Son who executed the Father's plan, and the Holy Spirit gave the Son the power to do it. That's how we see this this beautiful relationship of the Trinity. And I know this is kind of mind-bending, but it's also really cool. Because consider this, all of the ancient religions fashioned their gods after people. You know, the, the prevalent belief of the ancient world was there's a male god and a female god. They made love and had baby gods. That's what everybody believed. Some nations combined animals with people. Uh, The Philistines of the Old Testament, for example, worshiped Dagon, a God who was half fish, half man. Then, of course, there's all the Greek gods that you learned about in school. You know, they were just like people. You know, they'd bicker with one another, they'd make mistakes, they'd play tricks on humans. Then, of course, there's the individual gods, the one who received some revelation by themselves, and then wrote a holy book by themselves and then developed a following. But when you consider the triune God, the God of the Bible, three persons in one God, it is unique amongst any religion there ever was. Not a single religion can claim that this God was copied off of anything or anyone. This God stands above them all. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, arrived, and it gave the believers power. Let's continue to read. Verse 5. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who were speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? You know, I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world. I've also had the the, the dubious distinction of being lost in many of those places. I remember my wife and I one time were in Holland on a bike ride, and we had gotten so far off the path, we had no idea where we were, and we were lost. And because we don't speak Dutch, we were in trouble. And so we're asking everybody, "Uh, English, anybody speak English? And it was getting pretty desperate. And then finally, this gentleman comes along and says, how can I help you? There's something so beautiful about hearing your native tongue, especially when you're a foreigner in a foreign place. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. All these foreigners heard A most familiar sound coming from a most unlikely source. A bunch of uneducated country folk from Galilee. They said, we're hearing about Jesus in our own language. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And Peter went on to explain that Jesus is the only one who could save us from our sins. And our response is to give our lives to him, to trust him by faith, to confess our sins, to invite him to be our Lord and Savior. That's the only way. And after Peter presented this message, powered by the Holy Spirit in foreign tongues, look what happened. Verse 41, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This was the day the church was born, a multi-language megachurch in Jerusalem. And the reason why we gather on a Sunday is because the Holy Spirit arrived at Pentecost and birthed the church. And here we are all these years later, still trying to live out this mission to know Jesus And to make him known. So, what do these events that occurred beyond the grave have to do with us here and now? How can we relate to these stories the the ascension of Jesus, the, the choosing of the 12th apostle, the arrival of the Holy Spirit? How can these impact the way we live today? Well, what I want to do is I want to look at all three of these and see if we could, we could pull out some life lessons and some things that we could apply to our lives. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down. Here's the first one. Number one, we ought to worship with expectancy. Worship is a response. It's responding to who God is and what he's done. Now, many of us equate worship with music, And singing praises to God is one aspect of worship. But generally speaking, it's a response. It's exalting Jesus up above your circumstances. And then believing that there are good things to come. Let's go back to the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1. Verse nine, it says, after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Now, at first glance, this appears to be a very sad moment for the disciples because consider the emotional roller coaster they're on. They followed Jesus for three years, up high. Then Jesus was arrested and killed, down low. Then Jesus rose from the grave, back up high again. Now he left them again, Lo, That's actually not an accurate assessment of how these events went. Because our author Luke also talked about the ascension in his Gospel of Luke. And he gave some different details. Listen to this. This is Luke 24, 50. When Jesus had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. When Jesus ascended into heaven, it didn't leave the disciples with grief. It left them with joy. That word joy is the same word that was used to describe how the wise men felt when they saw the star in Bethlehem above the place where Jesus was born. It's the same word used to describe how Mary and the women felt on that first Easter morning when they learned that the tomb was empty. It's the kind of joy that fills the heart with excitement because it knows there's more to the story. And when the disciples came running back down that mountain, they had a joy in them that even though Jesus left, there's still good things to come. And among them, Is what the angel said, Acts 1.11, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus left in a physical body, which means he's going to return in a physical body. Jesus floated up before their very eyes, which means he's going to float down before our very eyes. Jesus touched off from the Mount of Olives, which means he's going to touch back down on the Mount of Olives. In fact, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah predicted this future return of Christ. Listen to these words in Zechariah 14. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south, verse 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Someday, Jesus is going to return. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives and he's going to head right back into Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate, which is currently walled off to prevent his return, which is kind of funny. And then he's going to take his seat on the throne of David. It will be a... An unprecedented time of blessing and peace and joy for all who believe. You know, recently I went to Israel and I was on the Mount of Olives. It's a really moving place. I I took this picture from my phone to give us an idea of, of what it looks like. There's Jerusalem there in the background. It's just a short walk, three quarters of a mile down. And while I was there, my friend Pastor Anthony snapped a picture of me right here. Trying to, trying to act like an apostle looking up in the sky on top of Mount Olives. And what I was doing is I was actually getting my camera ready and then I pulled out my camera and I took this picture. This is the sky up on top of Mount of Olives. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus came back right now while I was standing here on the Mount of Olives? And I kept looking and then some angels appeared to me. No, I'm just playing. Uh, and so... That is. These are the things to come. We, we can't know when, but we can know that it is going to occur someday. And so that's the kind of expectancy I can worship with. Because here's the deal: all of us, you, me, we all have problems that are overwhelming us, and they get our eyes looking down. And you know that when you worship Jesus, your problems don't magically go away. They're all waiting for you when you head out of this place. But when we exalt Jesus up above the circumstances, it starts to change our perspective from looking down to looking up and realizing that there are still good things to come. It doesn't mean that your marriage is over, that your future is over, that your kids' lives are over. There's good things still to come. You know, any given Sunday, I'm I'm up here preaching. I'm dealing with all of my stuff too. I'm stressed out over my family. I'm working through my insecurities. I'm I'm worried about the church. Are people going to come? Are people going to give? Are people going to surrender their life to Jesus? And these things can feel so overwhelming. But when I lift my eyes up and exalt Jesus up over those circumstances... I am reminded and I should be expecting that God is going to do good things. At the very least, he's coming back. At the very least. And so you and I, the the, the lesson we can learn from these disciples as they were coming down the mountain is that they were filled with joy, they were praising, and they were believing he's coming again. I ought to worship with expectancy. That's the first lesson we can get. Here's the second one. Wait with patience. The disciples were given a very simple instruction go to Jerusalem and wait. For how long? Well, let me give you some timelines. So, the festival of Pentecost took place 50 days after Passover. Jesus resurrected right after Passover. And so, if he was there for 40 days, that means there was a 10 day gap in between Jesus ascending and the Holy Spirit descending. So, how did the disciples spend those 10 days? Let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from a hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That's kind of cool. The brothers of Jesus were there. The last time we heard from Jesus' brothers, they hated Jesus and even tried to get him killed. But after they saw the resurrected Jesus, they believed. They were in this room too, along with the apostles and a a crowd totaling 120 people. And when I look at this, I'm reminded of just how many people were there. And I'm reminded that the disciples did not go off in isolation. They didn't say, hey, we're gonna figure this out on our own. They got themselves into godly community. Friends, you need godly people in your lives, especially when the dark days come. Jesus told them, love one another. So they obeyed him. They got together in community. But it wasn't just in the same room with people. It's what they did. Look at verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Men, women, old, young, all crying out to God together. And then they were also breaking down the scriptures. Remember Peter, says in verse 20, he said, it's written in the book of Psalms. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. May another take his place of leadership. When Peter brought up the fact that they needed to replace Judas, it wasn't just a good idea or a strategic decision. It was a biblical mandate. They did it because they were reading the Bible. So consider all these levels of obedience that occurred. They waited in Jerusalem. They did so in community, they prayed together, and they read the scriptures together. This went on for 10 straight days. Some of us can't wait 10 minutes. Where are you, God? Are you even there? Do do you still care about me? Because I haven't heard from you in a really long time. I wonder how many of you are in a season of waiting right now. And many of you are ready to quit. Because God hasn't given you the answer that you're looking for yet. Friends, you know that when you're waiting, there are things you can control and there are things you cannot control. We can't control the flow of time. We can't make time pass faster. We can't get the results sooner. We can't get the appointment quicker. We can't get the answer to the unresolved questions faster. We can't control that stuff. What we can control is what we do in the waiting. Are you obeying God as you wait. For so many of us, the reason why we hate waiting is because it feels like wasting. But God doesn't waste anything. And I've found in my own life some of the greatest formation that's taken place in my heart has come in the waiting. Friend, if you are obeying God as you wait, I can tell you, your answer will come But if you're not obeying him, that answer may pass you by. Let's wait with obedience. It's what the disciples did, it's what we should do too. Worship with expectancy, wait with obedience. Here's the third one, witness with power. Let's go back to what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does that word power really mean? Well, in the Greek language, it's the word dunamis. Now, I put it up on the screen. Does that word remind you of any English word you might know? How about dynamite? It's like this, that when you place your faith in Jesus, you receive the power of the Holy Spirit in you. It's like he sticks some dynamite into your soul. And you can start to feel the power power of God. And these disciples they experienced the power and one of them was supernaturally speaking in other languages called speaking in tongues. Now, speaking in tongues is something that has been debated by Christians for centuries. In fact, there's many Christian denominations where people would regularly practice the speaking of tongues. They believe that the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and so they, they have the ability to speak in a foreign language that they don't understand, either in private prayer or as part of a church worship service. And I could tell you, I know many good and godly people who believe that speaking in tongues is something that they do regularly. And although I hold a different position, I could tell you with confidence that what we do agree on is far more significant than what we don't agree on. With that said, I'm strongly opposed to the idea that the way that you know the Holy Spirit is working in your life is if you speak in tongues. So any Christian who says, I've never spoken in tongues, the implication is, well, that means you're not really a Christian. I just simply go back to Jesus' words in Acts 1.8 when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. According to Jesus, one of the, the best ways to know if you have the Holy Spirit is not in the wonders, it's in the witness. And so he said, go to Jerusalem. You're going to have power to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where they'll kill you. Go to Judea, the place where they will reject you. Go to Samaria, the place where they will hate you. And to the ends of the earth, who knows what you're going to experience there. None of us would witness on our own power. It's just too hard. It's just too scary. That's why Jesus Gave us the Spirit to give us power, dynamite in our souls to do this. And some of us are followers of Jesus, and you're saying, I just don't feel the Holy Spirit's power in my life. Maybe it's because you're not witnessing. Maybe it's because you're not sharing Christ. You want to experience that dynamite in your soul? Get into a conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And you will will be amazed at how the Spirit brings to mind Scripture. You didn't even know you had committed to memory. You'll be amazed at how the Spirit gives you words to say that are clear, how the Spirit gives you self-control and compassion and insight. And the more you tap into this power, you'll start to see it play out in your life in other ways. You'll start to experience the power of, of being able to say no to things that are bad for you being able to understand the scriptures, being able to break chains and stop cycles and, and rearrange your life around Jesus. But one, there's, there's still one massive, massive evidence that the Holy Spirit is involved in your life. You know what that evidence is? Transformation. We saw it almost immediately on the day of Pentecost. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Don't underestimate the enormity of this moment, because consider who this was and where this was. This was Peter. This was the guy who couldn't stand up to a little servant girl on the night Jesus was arrested. And this was Jerusalem, ground zero for persecution. But look at the transformation that took place. Peter wasn't denying Christ, now he was proclaiming Christ. The disciples weren't hiding in fear, they were preaching in public. The transformation was evident, but not just for them. Look at how the people responded. Verse 36, Peter said, "'Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? When the Spirit got a hold of them, that's when the transformation began to occur. Friends, I have seen a truth play out in my life over and over again, and that is this I cannot change anyone. I could try, I could give my best sales pitch, I could try to intimidate, I could bribe, I could put someone on a guilt trip. None of those things actually lead to transformation. Only God can do that. Peter didn't change anybody. What he did was witnessed with power and the Holy Spirit broke through. That's when the people were cut to the heart. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this ought to take some weight off your shoulders. Your job isn't to change anyone. Your job is to witness with power. Let the Holy Spirit speak through you. He's the only one that changes hearts. And there are some of you that you're so embarrassed of your past. And I don't think you should be proud of it if you were doing things that were, that were, that were not good. But here's the deal. The Holy Spirit can transform that as well. He could transform your embarrassment into evidence. You could tell people, this is a different person. I'm not who I used to be anymore. I'm not perfect. Nobody is. I have bad days. Everyone does. But come on, guys, you know me. I can't change me. I'm not the person I used to be. The Spirit of God is transforming me. Use your own story as evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Friends, the primary evidence that the Holy Spirit's power is in you is not the speaking of tongues, but the transforming of hearts. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you're wondering, do I have the Holy Spirit in me? Just look at your life. Is there evidence of transformation? If so, that's the power of the Holy Spirit in you. But listen, this power is only available if you surrender your life to Jesus. God the Father sent God the Son. When we place our faith in God the Son, we receive God the Spirit. And when you place your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in you and you could confidently say, I got the power. It ain't just a hip-hop song from the 90s. But apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you can't have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not like you'd have the Holy Spirit and not have Jesus. Those two come together. So my question for you is, have you ever surrendered your heart to Jesus? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were cut to the heart. And maybe right now, even as you're hearing this message, you're feeling a cutting in your heart too. That's the Holy Spirit, and He wants in. Have you ever intentionally placed your faith in Jesus? If you've never done that, I want to help you do that right here and right now. In just a moment, I want to lead you in a a prayer you could repeat after me. It's a prayer of just admitting our sins to Jesus, believing in faith he died in our place and, and committing to follow him. If you've never intentionally prayed that prayer, I wanna encourage you to do that right now. I wanna ask every head to bow, every eye closed, and just take a minute to just do an assessment of your life. You know you better than anyone knows you. Have you ever intentionally walked with Jesus? Do you have the power of the spirit in you? If not, and you're ready to invite Christ into your life as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to repeat this prayer after me in the silence of your own heart. Jesus, today I place my faith in you. He will hear this prayer from heaven. You tell him, Jesus, today I place my faith in you. I cannot save myself. I believe you are my only hope, Jesus. I confess my sins to you. I ask that you forgive me. And I ask that you give me the power of the Holy Spirit so that I could change my old ways and follow after you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Now, if you're somebody who prayed this prayer, this is what we want to do. We want to encourage you to take another step. On your programs is a little perforated card. It just tears off of the bottom right here, and there's a little box on the bottom that says, I said yes, I prayed to receive Christ. I want to encourage you to fill that out, check that box, and in just a moment when the ushers come through to collect today's offering, you can just drop that right in there, and one of our staff will get that and follow up with you. Maybe you have prayed to receive Christ, but you're not going anywhere. You're stuck in neutral. You're wanting to take some new steps. Here's how to do that. Grab your phone and text the word next to 909-281-7797. One of our staff people's on the other end of that, and they'll exchange some messages with you to customize a plan to help get you going. Maybe you want to get some Christian community in your life, some other believers to help you grow. We got Rooted starting up soon. Uh, Maybe you just need someone to talk to about your questions or you need some kind of assistance text next to 909-281-7797 or you could stop by the next step table and have a face-to-face conversation with someone today friends listen you and i will never know what it's like in this life to have lived in old testament times living under the law of moses and the animal sacrificial system in this life you and i will never know what it was like to live during the days of jesus being excited about his birth, being under his teaching, witnessing miracles. But you know what we can experience in this life? We can experience the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church. Those are the days we're living in right now. So let's worship with expectancy, believing that something good is yet to come. Let's wait with patience, obeying God. And let's witness with power. Let's continue in the footsteps of the apostles as we carry out the mission of Jesus beyond the grave. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray to you in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we say thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans, for not leaving us powerless, but instead sending your Holy Spirit, the presence of God in us to help us in this life follow you. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here who's languishing and who's struggling that by by the power of your Spirit in them, you would give them what they need to yield to you and follow you where you want to take them and give them exactly what they need to make it through. For anyone who's never yet trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you would cut them to the heart and not let them leave here unless they are sure that you are in their life as their Lord and Savior. And Father, as we worship you through the giving of gifts, we ask that you would take these financial offerings and bless them and multiply them so that others can be impacted through this church. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. And if you believe it in the church, then let everybody say, amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I want to encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve, or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.